This is The Guardian. Today, in European elections, the far right's share of the vote has basically plateaued. So how come they're growing in power? On Saturday, Georgia Maloney arrived at the presidential palace. She was driving a white uh, Fiat 500. She was then sworn in as Italy's first ever female leader. And on Sunday, there was a, a rather pleasing little thing called the bell ceremony. From that moment on, Maloney was Italy's new prime minister. Over the past decade, extreme right-wing politics has roared back to life across Europe. And for these parties, who promise their voters a crackdown on migrants, gay rights, abortion, among other things, last week's swearing-in of the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, was a milestone. The first time a far-right Italian leader had reached the post of Prime Minister since the Second World War, since Mussolini. While the Pope prayed for unity and peace, Maloney's right-wing allies across Europe were rejoicing. Europe's far-right leaders were absolutely delighted. Uh, Viktor Orban, the uh, the Hungarian nationalist prime minister, uh, said that this was a great day for the European right. Uh, And Marine Le Pen in France said, patriots everywhere in Europe are coming to power and with them this Europe of nations that we're hoping for. So something seems to be afoot with the far-right in Europe. Maloney's swearing in came just days after another milestone. In Sweden, the heart of liberal, progressive Scandinavia, a far right-wing party struck a deal to win a stake in the country's government for the first time in Swedish history. So what's driving this latest surge in far right groups coming to power? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how the extreme right is learning to take power in Europe and how the left can learn to stop them. John Henley, you're The Guardian's Europe correspondent, and you've been watching the far right grow in power over the past decade. And the sense that a lot of us might have is that they're getting more popular, winning more voters, swelling in party membership. Is that what's been happening? Well, interestingly enough, actually kind of isn't. It's pretty clear that the big leaps in support for most European far right parties are are almost a decade old now. I mean, in Sweden, for example, the Sweden Democrats, their big surge was back in 2014, 2015, uh, when they they suddenly doubled support from 10% to about 20%, which is basically what they got in, in this month's elections. If you look at the situation in Italy, it came a bit later, kind of 2017, 2018. It's quite interesting. These far-right parties, their increase in power is is clear, but they're not necessarily gaining in support. Okay, so there's there's a mystery there about how these parties are, as you say, growing in power without necessarily growing in popularity. And to figure out why, let's begin by looking at the recent election in Italy. 
now led by the far-right leader Georgia Maloney. We spoke about her on the podcast in the run-up to the Italian elections, but for the uninitiated, who is she? Maloney is 45 years old. Uh, she's quite a kind of political firebrand, very passionate speaker. She's the leader of the far-right nationalist and, and very socially conservative Brothers of Italy party, which uh, won about 25, just over 25% of the, the vote in the elections. Now, that party has neo-fascist roots, um, and Maloney has been involved with that extreme right movement since she was a teenager, really, since she was about 15 a real kind of patriotic defender of national sovereignty. She admires Viktor Orban in Hungary. She's uh, kind of quite in favor of the Italian Navy turning back migrants from Italy's shores, all, all that kind of thing. Okay, and she's now the prime minister of the country. How did she manage to pull that off? I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that all politics is local. There's a local situation here. She and her party have consistently stayed out of government. Now, Italy has had 12 governments so far this century, so 12 governments in the past 20-odd years, and the brothers of Italy have always been in opposition. So I think it's, and most experts you know, concur, that while a fair number of Italian voters certainly back her policies, a, a large number also felt basically, you know, we've tried everyone else, let's let's give this a go. That's the sort of local reasons. But I think there are underlying trends here. The, the first would be that she's worked very hard, like all uh, far-right parties, certainly like the Sweden Democrats in Sweden, like Marine Le Pen and, and the Rassemblement National in France, she's worked very hard to detoxify the brand. So, you know, and really kind of um, remove herself and her party from as many associations with kind of the jackbooted brand of, of far-right fascism that uh, was um, unfortunately so familiar in Europe. The second thing, I think she campaigned very hard on social issues, uh, very similarly to Marine Le Pen in France. It was all about the cost of living crisis, the fact that it's the less well-off who get to bear the biggest burden and, and the, the kind of wealthy elite who will, uh, who will sail through it all without suffering too much. And thirdly, I think what for me is probably the biggest underlying factor of them all, which is that over the past decade or so, the far right has just gradually become normalized in, hmm. in, in Europe. It's become an accepted part of the political landscape. Is that just by sticking around, by just being there election after election for years and years? I mean, how have they become so normalised? It's partly to do with the detoxification that we were just talking about. But it's also, I think, uh, in, in large part to do with the mainstream right's willingness to adopt the frames of the far right. And I think this has particularly been an issue on immigration. You know, ever since the, and before even, the, the, the European immigration crisis of 2015 it was a clearly a major issue for, for European voters. And, you know, the, the, the centre-right basically saw that the far right was getting a lot of traction um, with its objections to, to, to mass immigration. You can add to that 
you know, the inability of the left uh, to combat those views and also the inability of the left to kind of cooperate. Uh, that was really the case in Italy. Uh, the various parties of the left were at, at war with each other and refused to cooperate. And that's what opened the door for the for the far right to sort of waltz through. So there's a whole range of factors, but it, what it boils down to is a kind of a normalization, an acceptance of the far right's views, not just by voters, um, but by the political mainstream, the political parties themselves. Interesting. So the far right's views on immigration, which may have been considered outrageous, unacceptable back in 2014, are by 2022 firmly within the political mainstream, what the centre-right just takes for granted as policy. John, what does the other side of that coin look like? Not the far-right's ideas becoming mainstream, but the attempts by these far-right parties to detoxify, to clean up their brands. What does that look like? Looking at, at, at you know, Malone's platform, and even before she was elected, certainly since, she's really gone out of the way kind of not to rock the boat. And on the big picture, the really big picture stuff, kind of foreign policy and the economy, um, you know, she's dropped all the kind of anti-EU rhetoric that, that, that she used to have and that was, a, a, you know, a real feature of most far-right parties in Europe. Uh, she's pledged to, to keep Italy at, really at the heart of kind of European and Western institutions like NATO. Very, very pro-NATO. Uh, she's she's vowed on on numerous occasions that Italy would keep supporting Ukraine, for example, to the hill. I mean, they've really done everything possible to kind of reassure the markets, reassure the outside observers, and so that level of kind of uh, of kind of ostensible responsibility and reasonableness um, is very important. Okay, so she's trying to play it safe in a lot of ways in this effort to, as you say, detoxify the brand, to normalise her party. But tell me about what we think she might actually do now that she's been sworn into office. So if you look at what she's done, it's quite interesting. Um, She's renamed quite a few ministries. Okay, Um, so the Ministry of Agriculture in Italy is now known as the as also known as the Ministry of Food Sovereignty. You know, sovereignty are, are really are clearly a kind of, you know, a, a, a red button word. The Ministry of Economic Development has been renamed the Ministry of Business and Made in Italy. OK, kind of e- economic patriotism. Uh, the Ministry of the Family has become the Ministry of the Family and the Birth Rate. Wow. Birth rate, she's always seen it, you know, the birth rate as one of Italy's biggest problems. And it's headed by a, a, a minister who wants to restrict abortion rights. Uh, there's, a, there's a ministry of the sea, also a new ministry of the sea, which looks pretty likely to intervene in the question of migrant crossings in the, you know, in the south of the country. She's promised not to row back on any existing rights legislation. But I think there are legitimate questions to be asked. 
about abortion, about uh, you know the, the situation of the uh, of the LGBT community, about questions like gay parenting, um, and obviously the rights of of asylum seekers. These are all areas which are you know uh, uh, hot topics for her core voters, um, but that aren't necessarily likely to cause mayhem beyond Italy's borders. Okay, John, so that's Italy. And while the election of a far-right government there has sent shockwaves through Europe, it didn't come as a total surprise. There have been signs of populism winning out in Italy before now. But take us to the far north of Europe, to Sweden, a place we've come to associate in recent decades with progressive politics and social democracy. What's just happened there? Well, what's just happened is that there were elections last month. The largest party was as it has been for decades. I mean, in in living memory, really, uh, the Social Democrats. They actually gained support, interestingly enough. But, I mean, the real news was that the combined forces of the left were beaten by a right-wing bloc uh, of four parties, three of which are centre-right, but the fourth of which uh, was the far-right Sweden Democrats. Now, they finished as the second largest party and as the largest right-wing party, but probably more importantly. And those four parties, that right block, as it's called, agreed this month to form a government. It looks like the four right-wing parties have received just 50% of the votes in the election and in parliament. They have a one- or two-seat advantage. It's a thin majority, but it's a majority. It's made up of a three-party minority coalition of the three centre-right parties. So that leaves the Sweden Democrats, the far-right Sweden Democrats, out of government. But there's a deal. They have agreed to provide support in Parliament in exchange for being allowed to help shape government policy. It gives the far right direct influence over government policy for the first time. This is really interesting. You have a situation where the centre-left Social Democrats, this party that we've come to associate with Sweden and its progressive politics, actually gained in share of the vote at the last election. But instead, we have a coalition that includes the far-right Sweden Democrats. How did that happen? How did Sweden go from a place where where centre-left governments were the norm to what we have now? I mean, there are several reasons. In Sweden, the big question is... um, immigration and integrate the integration of immigrants. So Sweden's been extremely generous, arguably in, in kind of per capita terms, the most generous of all EU countries for, for, for many years, certainly up until 2015, in terms of the number of, uh, of immigrants that it accepted and asylum seekers that it accepted from abroad. And the number of people living in Sweden who were born abroad has doubled over the past 20 years to about 2 million people. That's a fifth of the population. There were big riots, um, really significant riots in several Swedish towns and cities at Easter this year. Fury at the authorities. The police targeted by protesters in this residential area in Norshuping. A spillover of days of clashes across Swedish cities. 
Three people needed medical attention here after being hit by police bullets. Several vehicles were set on fire. At least uh, more than 100 policemen were injured. It was a, it was a pretty, pretty spectacular uh, series of events. Flashpoints have stemmed from a series of organised rallies since Thursday, led by the leader of a Danish far-right political party currently on tour in Sweden. Inflammatory events that include the actual burning or threat of burning of the Koran. And Magdalena Andersson, the, the, the Prime Minister, actually conceded earlier this year that you know Sweden had basically failed to integrate many of these immigrants. And, and she, she actually the phrase she used was, we've created a nation of two parallel societies living in different realities. Wow. Um, so, you know, the, the Social Democrats uh, acknowledged this. And coming on top of that, these tensions over immigration and in integration is a very serious issue of gang-related violence. Um, so there have been a, a lot of gangland shootings in, in Sweden over recent years. Uh, there was a study out last year that showed that Sweden was actually the only European country where fo fatal shootings have risen significantly over the past 20 years. It's gone from one of the lowest rates of gun violence on the whole continent to, um, what, by some measures, the highest in less than a decade, and primarily because of organized criminal gangs. Um, so that's that's the background against which this election took place. Um, and once again, the underlying trends, the inability of the left to deal adequately um, and satisfactorily, to certainly to voters' satisfaction with the whole issue of immigration, which is such a you know, hot potato on the, on the left and has been for, for years. And uh, obviously, as we've discussed, this, this kind of the willingness of, this, of the centre-right coalition to work with the far right in order to be in power. And so tell me a little bit more about this party that now has so much influence in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats. Where did they come from and what do they believe? The Sweden Democrats kind of rather inappropriately named, but they've also been through a major detoxification process as part of which they commissioned a study a few years ago, um, which established that uh, of the party's 22 founding members in 1988, 18 of them came from a white supremacist group that wow. was called Keep Sweden Swedish. Yeah. And 10 of them had links to other kind of fascist and Nazi organizations. So pretty obnoxious roots. Um, but they were taken over in 2005 by a guy called Jimmy Orkerson, who, uh, a la Marine Le Pen, a la Georgia Maloney, set about detoxifying them. He kicked out many of their more kind of extreme elements. He took the party steadily more and more towards the, the mainstream. He's kind of overseen their rebranding. But I don't think there's any doubt that their popularity is essentially based on this kind of core message, which is that most of contemporary Sweden's problems, uh, including these persistently high levels of, of gang violence that we were talking about, are basically due to a kind of over-generous immigration policies and a failure to, to properly integrate sort of the new Swedes. And how much influence do we think they might have over Swedish government policy? How much will they be able to actually do? Well, they have already done a lot. In, again, not over economic policy, not over foreign policy, 
But uh, if you look at the government agreement uh, that's been signed between the three coalition parties and the Sweden Democrats, then you will see, for example, that uh, things are going to get very tough uh, for, for new immigrants in particular. Up until now, Sweden, every year Sweden has accepted 5,000 what's called quota refugees. So those are the refugees who are selected by the United Nations uh, refugee body, the UNHCR, for resettlement in a third country. So essentially, they're the most vulnerable refugees. That number under the coalition agreement is going to be cut to 900. Um, And it's only going to include those who have what's called what they call good predicted integration so quite how they'll decide what that means heaven only knows family reunification is going to be made more difficult residence permits in sweden are now going to be made temporary all of them there are going to be compulsory tests of competence in swedish and knowledge of the of swedish society there's going to be a whole raft of new reasons to revoke both citizenship and residence permits, things like what they call social misconduct, a lack of compliance with the rules. It's going to be harder for new immigrants to get benefits. Um, On on crime and insecurity, police are going to be able to take much tougher measures against criminal gangs. Sentencing is going to rise sharply, much longer sentences for gang crime. There's going to be a national ban on begging. They're going to open up the possibility of sending prisoners to serve sentences abroad. Uh, They're going to increase CCTV use. So again, it's these hot button culture war, domestic social issues. Coming up, why the tough winter months ahead will be the perfect conditions for the far right to grow. Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! John, in trying to understand this central mystery you've laid out for us of how these parties are managing to win power without actually increasing their vote, it sounds like the answer is that they're becoming more and more palatable, if not among the public, within parliament and and the media. And as a result, a lot of other parties are now willing to make deals with them, to set up coalitions and to give them a chance at actually running things. I think that's one of the main reasons why they are making progress. They are just essentially entering the mainstream. They've rebranded. They're presenting themselves more and more as reasonable, responsible parties of government. I mean, if you look even in opposition in France, for example, the Rassemblement National in the French Parliament, which has a large number of MPs in the French Parliament now, I mean, they are so well behaved, neatly dressed in suits and ties and trying to present themselves as a potential future party of government. That real effort's going on. The hallmark of the far right is really this propensity to pitch simple protectionist 
solutions to very complex and difficult problems. When times are hard, those kind of arguments cut through with voters. It's difficult for mainstream parties to counter those when you're in a difficult situation. And it's all part of this whole big package that has essentially led to them becoming a considered just a part of the political landscape. It's more apparent at the moment in countries where you have a a proportional representation system and essentially the big mainstream parties since the Second World War, so the centre-right and the centre-left. Those big mainstream catch-all parties, which used to get kind of 80% of the vote, in the 60s and 70s, they're they're getting half that now. The big parties are getting smaller and the small parties are getting bigger. But even in countries where you don't have proportional representation, like the UK, for example, we have first past the post system. Britain does not have a far-right populist party in government, or does it? I don't think there's any doubt that Priti Patel, uh, Suela Braverman's immigration policies anywhere else in continental Europe would be classified as far-right immigration policies. The way that the Conservative Party dealt with the far-right nationalist threat posed by Nigel Farage was essentially to co-opt his policies. It's even happened in countries where we don't have a proportional system. John, you've explained these kinds of slow processes that we've been seeing unfold in different European countries that have allowed far-right parties to gain more and more power. But all of that is now taking place in a very new context, one in which Europe is facing an incredibly tough winter ahead. Are the issues Europe is grappling with now ripe to be exploited by the far-right? It's obviously the case that the far-right plays on voters' fears. And, you know, Europe is in a a tough situation. There's a cost of living crisis, an energy crisis. There's a war going on. That's fertile ground for the far right. And I think that beyond that, looking further ahead, once we're out of that immediate crisis, the big issue clearly that's going to be looming over the coming years is going to be the green transition. If immigration kind of remains slightly off the radar compared to what it was in 2015, the far right will jump on the Green New Deal and basically the cost to the ordinary person. It will push, you know, it's the hard working family that's going to be hit by these measures. John, that that is a really grim picture that you're laying out. I'm wondering, what can Europe do as a whole, to face down that threat? Are there countries that you can point to that have found a way to blunt the appeal of the far right? You could point to the decline of Alternative für Deutschland, which is the AFD, which is the German far right party, which did markedly less well in Germany's most recent elections compared to the previous ones. But to be honest with you, I think that's more to do with the shortcomings of the AFD than it is with anything else. The real kind of hobby horses of the AFD, which was migration, Europe, the EU, and Angela Merkel, were much less important in the most recent German elections. It's to do also with the fact that 
they rather unwisely maybe allied themselves to COVID conspiracy theorists and maybe also to do with the fact that they haven't taken the same kind of radical detoxification steps. They seem to be determined to stay in their kind of extreme groove. And it's clearly not doing them any good. It's kind of turned voters away from them. Ultimately, the only way is to tackle these parties and these views head on and to defeat them in argument and to convince voters that the solutions that you're proposing are more effective, more equitable than their solutions. And at the moment, most political parties in Europe are still battling with that. John, finally, do you think there's any kind of silver lining in the fact that the march of these parties to power does not coincide with an increase in their popularity, that European populations as a whole are not drifting towards the far right. It's a matter of tactics that's proving so successful for the far right. And therefore, it could be something that the left itself could could emulate. They can still win these publics if they just find the right strategy to do so. Yeah, I mean, the data does show that there hasn't been a massive increase in far-right support. It's kind of stabilised. And if these parties are advancing, it's because of other factors. It's because of the fragmentation of the political landscape. It's because of the failure of the left to coordinate and come up with counter-arguments. It's because of the willingness of the right to cooperate. It's the role of the media. These views are so often relayed willingly and relatively uncritically and not being fact-checked. That's certainly helped. But yeah, I mean, I think it does show that it's still up for grabs, really. It's absolutely not an inevitability that the far-right vision is going to take over. Strategy and tactics and convictions with a bit of good fortune could yet win the day. John, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was The Guardian's Europe correspondent, John Henley. Thanks again to him. You can follow all our coverage of European politics at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Josh Kelly, Ned Carter-Miles and Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers were Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.